0: Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to Framework Leadership, a podcast about principles and ideas you can use today to take your leadership to the next level. We're now exclusively a part of the SEU Podcast Network. I'm your host, Ken Engel, president of Southeastern University.
1: And I'm your co-host, Michael Steiner, SEU chief of staff. And while we're excited
0: today to introduce our guest for today's show, Dr. Joe Davis. Dr. Davis was a church planner in Baltimore, Maryland, where he pastored for 19 years before coming to work as professor here at Southeastern University. It's been 16 years now, right? Yeah, yeah that's right. Was, since you came? Dr. Davis is also the Executive Director of Anchor House Ministries in Auburndale, Florida. Just a delight to have you on the show today.
2: Well, thank you so much. Great to be here.
0: You know, I, I want to open up our conversation on Anchor House. This is a group home which provides... Temporary housing to troubled boys from ages 10 to 18. These young men have been either removed from their homes due to abuse or uh, neglect or or were orphaned. Tell us a little bit more about the ministry and what led you to this particular outreach.
2: Yeah, uh, I'm going to say that uh, I didn't uh, know anything about it. And a good friend of mine just came along and uh, said, uh, Listen, I've been offered a job at this place called Anchor House. And uh, I'm moving out of state. I'm going. up to uh, North Carolina, and I told them that you'd be perfect for the job. <laughs> and I said, this is tr- yeah, yeah, it's true. And I go, well, you no, know, but I'm a professor at Southeastern, and I have no intention of stop, stopping teaching. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, I told him that. And I said, do you tell him that I go around speaking on the weekends? And he goes, yeah, I told him that. I said, do you tell him I lead trips to Israel, too? And he goes, yeah, I told, I told him them that. that. <laughs> and I said, well, and they still want to interview me. He said, yeah, they do. And I told them that they should hire you. Wow. <laughs> so um, I didn't really go looking for it. It just sort of fell in my lap, of course. Mm-hmm. I look at that as Providence. Right, right. And uh, I, I was a little bit uh, confused by it all, but I thought, yeah, you know, it doesn't hurt to go check it out. Sure. Well, when I went there, I, uh, in all honesty, Kent, I was uh, uh, horrified mm-hmm. at what I saw and uh, I don't mean any disrespect to the people who went before me, but uh, it just looked like a place where, where kids would be dumped and no money would care what mm. happened to them. Now, I know that wasn't the intention of, of the people that were there. I, I think that it, what had occurred is that there was just not enough money, basically, yeah. to fix it up, and there was concern, because in the past Anchor House had had financial problems, and so there was just a, a concern there. And when I saw it, I thought, this is great yeah. mm. <laughs> because I thought, you know, uh, this is something where I can create what I want. I can I can um, pour myself into a creative aspect, which I sort of like that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I thought, you know, this is a this is an interesting opportunity. And um, I have the mind of a child, so I went, get along well with children.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. yeah, it's good. So tell us a little bit about what it looked like. Like to, to come up with a vision for that, you know. Over the last eight to nine years, you've really turned it around. It's become a whole different thing. What? How did you know what those first steps were that you needed to take to turn it around?
2: Yeah, um, a, c- a couple of things. Uh, during my interview, I I asked them, so what happens to uh, the boys when they turn eighteen? And they said, well, we wish them well. Wow. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, Doctor Davis, there just isn't money to do anything about it. And I said. Okay, so I'm just going to be really transparent with you. Number one, if you hire me, I'm going to spend all the money that you have. Yeah. And we're going to fix this place up and it's going to look good. And the second thing is we're going to have transitional houses. Yeah. And I'm going to start a transitional house. And, and they looked at me as like, you know, sort of, Sure. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're a dreamer, aren't yeah. you? Yeah. And the answer is yes, uh, I am. And uh, when I, I saw this, I thought, I, I can't even imagine why you're doing this mm-hmm. if in the end you're going to dump kids out yeah. on the street. Right. Right. And so the statistics are nationwide, 20% of uh, foster care children will be homeless their first day. In other words, when they turn 18, they wow. will be homeless. 60% will be in jail. Uh, by the time they turn 21. And uh, it's just a horror. I didn't know these statistics when I started. I just thought, I don't even understand right. this. What yeah. what what is going? Why would you even have right. a home for children if mm-hmm. you're going to just dump them on the street? And then I started in December, and I and I saw it happen. Yeah. Uh, the caseworker came by, did not call, and on the 18th birthday of one of uh, the boys that was there, picked him up, said pack your stuff, and dropped him down at one of the local homeless street ministry m- ministries. And I thought this
1: is. This is no way. Who would yeah. want, who yeah,
2: would want to turn that. 18? Sure. Yeah. Right, and so um, I know that the board didn't believe me. And uh, part of the leadership thing is uh, the board and I had to get used to one, enough. right? Of course, sure. you all know me, you're like, Well, I'm sure that yeah. took a time, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, I was like, No, no, uh, if we're gonna play this game, we're gonna do it, yeah. And uh, so uh, it took a little bit of them getting used to the fact that I was really gonna lead, mm-hmm. uh, right. that I, I just wasn't gonna to sit by and uh, hope that things worked out mm-hmm. and so um, uh, the first thing I did is uh, I, I planted palm trees along the entrance mm. and the reason I did that is because I thought the first thing that a child sees I want it to be welcoming Yeah. and so that they actually would like to stay here the second thing I did and, and it was sort of like I said a board decision uh, where they said okay mm-hmm. um, I said the sign's got to go and we had a sign that looked like it was a machinist shop. And it was probably about uh, 12 inches by 12 inches. And it said Anchor House Ministries. And it was white and it just looked like somebody gave it to us Mm -hmm. who didn't know what they were doing and put it out front. And I said, this is horrible. This is the first thing that people see. No, no, this has got to go. And the board said to me, I don't think you can do that, Dr. Davis. You know, there's all these regulations. And I said, listen, we've been around since 1974. Everybody here knows who we are, what we are, and they want us to succeed. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do that sign, and I'm going to pay for it. If it's a, in other words, if they tell us you got to remove it, whatever money we spent, I will pay for it myself. Mm. And they're like, "Well, okay." And of course, no one said anything. Right. Right. And we have a beautiful sign. Yeah. And so uh, we we just started to change things that mm-hmm. would give an institutional feel. Yep. And uh, one of the things we did is, uh, and it's comical because uh, you know when you have a vision, and you know Kent, when you have a vision, it's not not everybody's on board. Right. And uh, one of my great stories I like to tell is. Uh, Robert Fulton and the steamboat, when he, di- when he started the steamboat, everybody goes, it'll never work, it'll never work, it'll never work. And then after it started going, they started yelling, it'll never stop. It'll never <laughs> stop. <laughs> so I went in and I looked and they had these metal doors with mesh wire uh, for windows, wow. which is what you see in a psychiatric hospital or a prison. Right. And so I looked at them and I said, what is this? And they're like, well, they're the door. <laughs> He's yeah. Too yeah. stupid to You're understand him. what the <laughs> door is. <laughs> you know, and I said, remove them. They're, they're go- the, we're putting wood doors in. And the staff looked at me and said, I don't think you understand. These kids are tough kids. Yeah. And I said, I don't care. Yeah. Remove the doors. We're not going to teach them how to live in jail. Right. And so, it's huge. put wood doors on there, and, and we're going to make this place to be a place where a kid wants to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, granted, we put thick wooden doors. Right, in, right, right, yeah, right, But they were wood. Yeah. And so we just started to change everything. The, yeah. the entrance to the hallway was gray concrete. I mean, it was concrete, and it wasn't well-done concrete. It was just, again, some volunteers probably came out. Yeah. God bless them. They threw some concrete down, and it looked like somebody threw concrete down. They didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. And so I removed, not removed, but I put brick pavers over yeah. it. So now we have a brick entrance, removed the doorway, which, again, looked just like something out of a horror movie Mm -hmm. and put in very nice looking doors. And so um, we just began to change things. And and the final thing I'll say is in the office, it had become the warehouse. And so the office was where everybody put stuff that they didn't know where to go. And so I waited until after Christmas because I didn't want to ruin anybody's Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) But after Christmas in January, I came in and I said, uh, called the the Mm -hmm. office administrative staff over. And I said, so... um, This week, uh, this office uh, will be spotless, and -hmm. there will be no more boxes in this office. Yeah. And uh, I need this done quickly. Yeah. And uh, I want to see what it looks like, because we'll never go back to this. So they did. They cleaned it in two days. It looked beautiful. And I said, just so we're clear, Mm -hmm. if it ever goes back to that, you all will lose your jobs. Yeah. And so, I, I want to be very yeah. clear as to what my expectation is. Thanks Jeez. be to God, that has never occurred. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, right, right, right. so it, it worked out really well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. A- atmosphere, environment is speaks volumes as to your care, your compassion. Um, I've always believed every blade of grass is an evangelist to what you value. And so, yeah, I love just, just those practical things that you did to make it a warm, welcoming environment. You... Um, You've hired, actually, you've hired several SEU alums to to work in direct care position with with these boys. Uh, With areas of trauma, it can be difficult, of course, to find people with that. Proper discernment and calling to work in in those kinds of environments. How, how did you know to how, how do you, how do you hire the right person? What do you look for? What qualities did you look for in these
2: individuals that you did hire? <laughs> so the funny story is, I hire people who aren't like me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yep. It's good. And, and, it's good. And what I mean by that is, uh, I'm not detail oriented, and uh, you know my wife Dana. Mm-hmm. She's, She's incredibly detail oriented. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we're like totally polar opposites. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm just not. Right. And she is incredible at oh, it. yeah. She's the and, best. And yeah. <laughs> she's she's yeah. very good. And so uh, I know it. Uh, and, and this gets to uh, – you may have heard this concept, divine design. Yep. I don't, yeah, mm-hmm. you, yeah. I've heard of it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, I, I know where I have skills and where I don't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I know that I'm just not a detailed person, and I hate them, in all yeah. honesty. Yeah. I mean, I just don't like them at all. To me, it's like purgatory. Right. And so um, – uh, I look for people who have skills that I don't have. Mm-hmm. I don't really look for someone to do my job. I look for people to assist me in my job. Mm-hmm. And so my job is to tell people the story of Anchor House, uh, to uh, be able to communicate effectively. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the people that I have in the office particularly are are very, very, they're just incredibly mm-hmm. detail-oriented. And and. What I look for is passion, mission, and efficiency. Yeah. And so what's great about hiring Southeastern students – and everybody ought to hear this, by the way yeah. – <laughs> is that, in fact, they're passionate yeah. and they're mission-oriented. Yeah. And so you give me someone who's passionate, mission-oriented, and has skills – Oh, my golly, we can do anything. And so uh, I also have another method, and that is it's called my midterm. Yes, yes, Yes. The great (laughs) interview.
1: The great interview. And so (laughs) – Yep. You're right. I took so, a couple of those just so everybody's quick. I've survived them. I'm still here today. Do you have the scars? Still? A few of them. Yeah. A few of them. Okay. Sometimes I right. have to, I can't hide my limp, but we're there.
2: <laughs> so effectively, I can find out kind of quickly who's the bright ones, right? Right. Because it's those who do the well on my midterms. Right. And uh, so, uh, truthfully, uh, when we're <laughs> when yeah. we're hiring people, I say, "What is the name of that person?" Right. And I, if they've had my class, I know exactly. What their intellectual ability. Right. Sure. Right. And so, you know, we hire very smart people who mm-hmm. are passionate, mission oriented, and I have a great benefit that probably most other employers don't have. I get to see them yeah. in their intellectual ability and their passion and their mission before I ever hire them. Hiring is definitely one of the biggest things in running a successful company.
1: Yeah. And so I, I sort of have a leg up on that. Well, you got the inside track. I do. You're getting yep. these kids way way earlier on. I, I absolutely it's do. It's huge. Um, one thing I want to touch on that you just talked about, which I think is is huge for leaders, is this idea that you're laser focused on what you're supposed to be doing, right? So so yeah. many you know, pastors, leaders, and things are getting they're they're having to, they feel like they have to do everything. They got to be True. a part of all the different pieces in there. How do you arrive at that spot where you are where you know what you're supposed to do? To the point where you can say no to the things that you're not. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, The the
2: answer is I've grown. Yeah. Okay. So when I was a pastor, I did try to do every. I tried to be omnipresent, which, by the way, wasn't my job description. Yeah. (laughs) And and, only one person's got that job description. Yeah. And so, uh, and I made a mistake. Uh, I'll say it this way. because I was very conservative fiscally, I did not hire enough staff. Mm. I didn't hire as many staff as I should. And I I tried to do too much. And uh, even though I was 19 years there, I think that uh, I actually hampered the church Mm. uh, by not being more uh, willing uh, to spread out uh, the work and to delegate. And um, uh, I I learned from that Mm. and I realized in retrospect and looking back, I could say, ah, you know, that probably wasn't the brightest thing. Yeah. And so when Anchor House came along, I had learned, mm-hmm. and then there was a second aspect I just couldn't do it. Yeah. And you know, as I told them in interviews, I'm going to teach at Southeastern. Uh, that's my primary responsibility. I'm going to. I'm, I I I love teaching. Right. I'm, And so, I just can't Mm -hmm. do everything. Mm -hmm. And so, that actually worked to my advantage, uh, that I couldn't do everything. And so, I, I began to understand my job as more of watching over and making sure the job gets done. Now, yeah. I have specific responsibilities, like I talked about that other people can't and shouldn't do, mm-hmm. uh, selling, telling the story of Anchor House, but uh, things that I'm not good at, I definitely shouldn't do, Right, particularly when there's people far more qualified, yeah. and and I just don't have the ability to do them. Therefore, I do have to delegate and make sure that the job gets done. It's worked wonderfully, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and, and frankly, I'm, I'm not sure I'm bright enough to have come to that conclusion without necessity. Right. So it sort of had to occur right. and it's really worked out very well.
0: Yeah. As a young man comes into to uh, anchor house, what 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 does it look like as they start that process? What's a day by day um, you know they go through?
2: Yeah, and and that's uh the answer is it's uh Uniform in one sense and uh, depending on the child in another, Um, 86% of the children that come to us have been abused either sexually or physically. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they have a sort of a different uh, track. Uh, I'm glad to say we're now at the point where we not only have a therapist, which Mm -hmm. we never had, and uh, I can just tell you all sorts of horrible stories along those lines. When I first came there, we just couldn't afford it. Mm -hmm. And the bottom line is they'd have a court-appointed therapist who would come and see four children in 10 minutes. And just wasn't working. Yeah. And so it was always my desire to hire our own therapists so that, frankly, we could get rid of that nonsense mm-hmm. that was pretend therapy. And uh, so we not only have a therapist, we now have a clinical director. And so we, our program has shifted completely, Kent, to instead of housing uh, children with trauma, mm-hmm. to helping Children with That's trauma. Correct. Yeah, we didn't have the financial ability to do it before because, and here's the postscript uh, or the the running story. When I first came there, there was concern uh, because uh, there wasn't any money, mm-hmm. and I told them, "I'm going to spend all your money," and I didn't spend it all, fortunately. Mm-hmm. However, we doubled our income in our first year. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, and as a result of the success that we had with our first transitional house, people began to believe in us and success begets success. Right. Yeah. Our first transitional house, we had five boys enter, only one had a high school diploma or GED, which I later found out it was actually above the average. Only 12% have a high school diploma or GED nationwide. And so uh, when they turn 18, which is just a, a recipe for failure, right? Right. no question homelessness. And so we put five. Five in, only one had a high school diploma. After one year, to my surprise, all five of them stayed, loved it. All five had a high school diploma or GED. After two years, again, they stayed. All five entered college. And I was just stunned, number one, that they wanted to stay because when I was 18, I was like, I want out. I want right. to do my own thing. Of course, maybe because I was a little bit more independent. But then it created another problem. We don't have any place to put other children who are turning 18. And so fortunately, we bought another house because we had the funds available, we had a donors agree and said, mm-hmm. okay, man, this is going great. Same thing happened in the second house. Yeah. And so after five years of doing it, our rate of children getting eight uh, GEDs or high school diplomas mm-hmm. is 92% wow. versus 12 wow. to 14% yeah. uh, nationwide. nationwide. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, and still college is 50%. And so now we have our, we've bought a third house for females and I just put a contract in on a fourth house. Mm-hmm. Uh, so success begets success. Mm -hmm. And if you can communicate the success, then in fact, people like it, they buy in. Mm -hmm. And so back to your question, what is a normal day? Like I'm very big on first impressions. Mm -hmm. And so when the child comes, they have a welcome bag and and a staff is assigned to be with them to make sure their first 24 hours that they're, they're being taken care of. Yeah. And so then they are going to be in a program basically that is therapeutic. Again, 86%. 86%. And, and when people ask me, well, what kind of children are in Anchor House? My response is, and, and I, I try to communicate as best I can on this, we have orphans in the truest sense of the word, mm-hmm. children who don't have family, and then we have it those children who have it worse than orphans. And what I mean is children whose parents have been taken away in handcuffs, and they've seen them be taken away, and whose parents are in jail, and whose parents they fear, and whose mm. parents have beat them senseless, and whose parents have abused them. And so, so when these children come in, we understand that they're volatile, that they're angry, they're upset. And so, we try to create a milieu in which they feel like this place is better than what they have. Mm. And it's not just a a a place to dump children and that they want to stay there. This actually backfired on us uh, this past year Hmm. uh, because we had trouble getting the kids to agree to be adopted. Wow. Yeah. And so what happened is the kids were going, we don't want to leave. Right. And we're like, no, no, no. See, you should want to be adopted because adoption is like better for you. Right. And I had one kid look me in the eye and say, Dr. Davis, Anchor House is my home. Yeah, and I don't want to leave. He goes, the staff here love me, and and he goes, why would I want to go somewhere? I'm safe. I can eat like crazy. Yeah, and you guys take me out on fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. and he goes, I don't know that that's going to occur when I go to right. a, a family. And I had to sit back and go, yeah, it's probably true. Right. Yeah. We we can't assure you that you're gonna have as much fun. <laughs> right. So um, what's it like? We, it's a therapy such area. Where each kid, when he comes in, is introduced to the idea, you need therapy. Now, I'm going to tell you, almost all of them are against it. Right. They're like, no, yeah. I don't need it. And we're like, yeah, well, that's not really an option. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. yeah, this is how this works. But we try to mix that with as much fun as we can so that they'll actually want to stay. stay. And um, really, it really comes down, truthfully, for all our programs to the staff who are there with them. Yeah, twenty four seven, and and working with them—that's where it makes or breaks.
1: Tell us a little bit about how. So, so obviously, this is a really high stress, high pressure thing for staff dealing with these you mean students. working for me you no know, well uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah well working in that pinch right right we're working with highly volatile students where we've got a r- great vision that we're trying to execute how how do you help the staff cope with that stress how do you keep them motivated through all those different difficult things and through all these difficult kind of
2: your situation truthfully it's not easy yeah. uh, michael um and um The the harder the child, the the more stress on the staff, Mm -hmm. and so one. We we just try to improve. We're trying to well, we have not trying. We're definitely kicking up the pay. Yeah. The other aspect of that is uh, something I introduced last year that never had. uh, We think of it as normal. Staff at Anchor House had never had health insurance.
1: Really? Yeah.
2: Right. And so here we're asking people to to really. Uh, deal with violent children who right. will, will freak out from time to time and no health insurance. So, I mean, trying to do that. And the other thing is, I think, coming alongside them and listening mm-hmm. uh, and being there f- and for support. And so, the idea is that you're not in it alone. We're here with you. Yeah. And uh, my goal, uh, even now, is to just make it better f- uh, for the staff to create a sounding board. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a We have people that we're looking into to actually be like uh, therapeutic counseling for our staff when they need it. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, it'd just be the worst thing in the world to have your own struggles in private life and then come and have some kid uh, cuss you out as soon as he sees you. Right. So... um, it isn't easy. Yeah, uh, and and really, the only people that can do this job is someone who is mission oriented. Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah.
0: Now, in addition, to, uh, I mean, being a pa- serving as a pastor professor, you actually also orchestrated medical clinics overseas a- a- at one point. Even started a drug rehabilitation program called Addicted to
2: Jesus. Hmm.
0: Where would you take people? Um, yeah, and, and in that ministry, you would actually take people into your home, right? And, yeah. And help Yeah, them get that tells clean. you something
2: about Dana, too. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> tell, tell us more about that experience and how it prepared you for other
2: public outreach opportunities. Yeah. Um, with the addiction, uh, it, it again. It was just sort of. It, it really is just the parable of the good Samaritan uh, come to life. And what I mean by that is, all of a sudden, all these drug addicts started coming into our church. Uh, it, maybe it was easier to listen to my sermons. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so I'm getting all of these people. From, we had a suburban church, and all of these people from the inner city coming in, and I'm sitting there going, "So what do we do?" And the the uh, crisis point came when a gentleman who really, really wanted to get clean, who was a male prostitute who was coming to our church, said, Dr. Davis, I'd like to get clean. How do I do it? And I said, well, go down to Johns Hopkins uh, Hospital, because we were in Maryland, and just uh, go to the emergency room, tell them that you, uh, you have an addiction and that you want to get clean. And so, he did that, and he says, they don't want to help. And I said, what do you mean? He says, you have to be suicidal in order to get help. Yeah. And he goes, so what should I do, Dr. Davis? Should I lie and tell him I'm suicidal? Because I'm not suicidal or do I get help somewhere else? And I said, well, I'm sure there's somebody who will take you in. Well, that was wrong. Mm. I didn't know what I was talking about. And so after he showed me, oh, no, there just aren't any beds open for people who can't pay for addiction. And uh, I was like, Oh, really, And so I talked it over with Dana, and uh, I said, you know i th- I think that we should this is the parable of the good Samaritan I mean we have someone who's going to die mm. if we don't help him, and uh maybe we should just take him now. The other part of this is he had made a commitment to Christ, mm. and so he was he really did want to get clean, and he really did want to follow the Lord, mm. and so I thought, well, you know, I am my brother's keeper, sure, and so I probably should do something. And so, even though we had small children at the time, I thought, this is a good thing for my kids too. Mm. They're going to see that Christianity is not just a theory, it's something that we do. And so, I started bringing drug addicts into our home and I was shocked by the success we had. And looking back on it, part of it was we lived way out in the country, and. You we're like, if you want to leave, you just go, you know it's only a five mile walk. you just go for it, yeah. <laughs> and uh, the other part is what I didn't realize is I had them come with me everywhere I was going, so I was effectively discipling them. It was a yeah. little comical when I do a funeral. It looked like I had bodyguards standing
1: there <laughs> me. I
2: mean, it was a little funny uh. so um it worked, and so I just started taking more people in and we got to the point where we had three or four people in our home, and I was like, well, I had a sort of a small home, mm. and I thought. Yeah, maybe the Lord is trying to tell me something. And the Lord really created it. Uh, and when I made that, somebody walked up to me and said, hey, I want to give you a house to do wow. this thing called drug addiction, and you can run a program. And I was like, well, I don't really know anything about this. So lo and behold, this young gentleman comes to church who was a former addict, and he goes, uh, hey, um, my wife's going to come, but she was like, a, she used to be a Christian, but she's totally against it now. And I'm like, well, if she's willing to come, cool. Mm -hmm. And so she comes, she comes, she rededicates her life to the Lord. The first Sunday she's there, who is she? She runs the floor for the drug recovery center for Johns Hopkins Hospital. Ah. And she goes, if there's anything I can ever do to help you with drug addiction. And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And so truthfully, uh, I brought in, I mean, I had one of the best delivered to me. Right. Right. There and I'm like, can you help me uh, do this thing called addicted to Jesus? Mm-hmm. And s- truthfully, she took it over and wow. ran it. Yeah. So it's it just the Lord.
1: Well, and what's so powerful, and this keeps this keeps happening with the stories that you talk about, with all the different pieces, is that you you have this like. Openness to say yes to the opportunities that they come to. And you've got these kind of, you know, you've seen it a lot where it's just seeing these different needs. How can leaders have their eyes open for this kind of thing? I think so many get wrapped up in different pieces. How can you be open to these opportunities to find, to find, the, to, to really bring help? This is, I think, a matter of prayer. Yeah. And what I mean by that is there's two
2: ways of seeing seeing so you don't see, and seeing so you do see. Right. Yeah. And a uh, quick funny story on that my daughter Rachel, who you all know, when mm-hmm. she was small, she really didn't like working. And I'm a big <laughs> proponent that people need to work. And so her job was to collect sticks for the kindling. And so um, she came back, and her box had three. Twigs in it. Now that would have been okay, except we had three acres of oak trees on our property. (laughs) And so I looked at Rachel and I said, Rachel, were there not any twigs on the ground? She goes, I couldn't find any. And I said, So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go out and I'm going to look, and if I find one, I'm going to deduct five cents from your allowance each stick I find. (laughs) And so she grabbed the box back rather quickly and she said, I'll look again. And so she went out and looked, well, it was a matter of minutes. she comes back, the box is full. Now, I have a sarcastic side to me. You're aware of it. Really? No, really. Very. So I said, Rachel, a miracle has occurred. All of a sudden, within this brief period of time that you were here, God has removed all these branches from the trees. Isn't that wonderful? And she said to me one of the most insightful things I've ever heard. She goes, well, Dad, there's two ways of looking. There's looking so you don't see. Yeah, yeah. And good. then there's look and so you do. She goes, the first time, I looked so I wouldn't see. see. Yeah. And the second time, I decided to see. That's powerful. So I think the answer is our hearts have to be prepared for what God brings our way. Yeah. And if, in fact, our hearts are prepared, to go back to the parable of the Good Samaritan, there were three opportunities there. But two of them didn't see, or if they saw, they decided to ignore it. Yeah. yeah. And so, I think that your heart has to be prepared and open to wanting to see. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that, that I think is just part of our walk in Christ. Uh, and so I pray that I'll always be that way. Yeah. No,
0: mm-hmm. oh, that's so good. Love this conversation, but we're going to have to close it out with our fire round. Yep. We love the fire round because we ask some quick questions sure. and just want to get your gut level response to them um, and, and just get some practical, applicable pieces of advice for. Those that are listening. So, uh, Michael, I'll let you begin with the first one.
1: All right, all right. So, what is the most important lesson you learned when you were a pastor that you still hold on to today? Learn to delegate. So far as a leadership
2: principle, mm-hmm. uh, you can't do it all by yourself. Right. And if you think you can, you're not only sadly deceived, but you've really misunderstood why other people are here. <laughs>
1: yes. Okay. <laughs> all
0: great. right. Second question: Define one um, crucial. A really crucial characteristic that needs to be carried among those serving in nonprofit organizations.
2: Yeah, boy, I can think of 20 off the top of my head. Um, mm-hmm. One crucial passion. Yeah. I think, because you're, if you're in a nonprofit, you're going to have your tough times. Yeah. And um, I think that you have to truly believe that this is where God wants you. Right. And if you, if you have that, that will steer you through the tough
1: times. Yeah. Oh, good. It's good. Last question for us before we close out. What's the first and biggest day, step you need to take when trying to fix a failing organization? Vision. Yeah, there's no question what that is. Yep. You
2: have to see it before other people see it. And uh, like I said with the doors, yeah. they were like, "No, I don't think you know what you're doing. And so you have to see it, yeah. uh, and and without a vision, of people perish. And so I think th- the hallmark of all great leaders is the ability to see it before it gets there. Yeah, yeah, it's huge.
0: Well, thank you, Dr. Davis, uh, for joining us today on on framework leadership. Just to uh, to hear your heart and and to hear how you are. Making a kingdom difference in in so many lives um, is is so valuable, and I hope that uh, m- those that are listening, maybe this conversation has encouraged you to really. Lean in and discern the opportunities that maybe God has for you as you uh, as you serve Him and are faithful to Him, and of course, as as you mentioned, and we talk a lot about here, it goes down to divine design when you are truly aware of. How God made you and wired you and the experiences and the things that he's putting, the passion he's putting in your heart, it allows you to recognize Mm -hmm. those opportunities that come that you can serve in a way that will make a kingdom difference. So thank you for this conversation today and and your
1: encouragement. Uh, Just grateful for it. Thank you, Ken. Love having you on the show, Dr. Davis. If you want to stay up to date with Dr. Davis, you can follow him on LinkedIn. A lot of different information on what you're doing with, with Anchor House, different pieces there. Is there a, a website if students want to get involved with Anchor House? Where Absolutely. can they go? Uh, it is anchor-house.org. Perfect. Anchor-house.org perfect. And uh, as always, if you're watching us on YouTube right now and you love what happened today, love this conversation, go ahead, hit that like button, that follow button so you can get more leadership content into your YouTube feed. You can also check us out on Instagram at Kent underscore Engel or on Twitter at Kentingle.com. And hey, if you love leadership content, stuff to help you go to the next level and you want it in your inbox every single week, subscribe to our newsletter. You can go to Kentingle.com, get it there. It's a weekly newsletter. It's chock full of resources, articles, books, things to help take your leadership to the next level. Thank you so much for listening to Framework Leadership. Hey, have a great uh, week. Take care.